Our guest today is Tokiwa Smith. She's a black female chemical engineer, social entrepreneur, and STEM educator with over 18 years experience working in education and philanthropy. She's the chief executive officer at principal consultant of Kimet Educational Services, a science, technology, engineering, and mathematics educational consulting firm established in 2010. Uh, they focus on ensuring that pre-college, community college, and undergraduate students are prepared to pursue STEM careers. Tokiwa, thank you for joining us on Reimagining Black Relations. Thank you for having me. Tokiwa, please tell us a little about yourself and your background. Well, I am a Florida native, raised and born in Dade County, Florida, in Miami. And I was a girl that have always loved math and science as long as I could know um, my fifth grade teacher told my mom to encourage me in those subjects because I was good at it. Um, in 10th grade, I discovered chemistry was my favorite STEM discipline, and I was always good at math. And so I went to FAMU and majored in chemical engineering. But I would have never thought that my career path would have taken the path that it's taken because based on what I wanted in high school and college, I would be a chemical engineer somewhere, but you know, life takes turns and you move in directions. And I feel like my career has been based on things that I've been passionate about, wanted to change the world and do good mentorship. So I transitioned into STEM education with a mentor. I graduated in 2001 and that's when we had an economy collapse and some of the jobs narrowed in my field and all the jobs that I didn't want were the jobs I was being offered, which is working in a plant, which I never intended to work in a plant as a chemical engineer. <laughs> They're dirty. People pay to like <laughs> want to do that. And so one of my mentors connected me with his friend and colleague who worked at Georgia State University and had a bridge to baccalaureate program where they ensured that community college students transfer to four-year institutions to finish their STEM degrees. And that is where my STEM education career started. And so I moved to work at Spelman College. Um, I ran tutorial programs at ACS, which is where the idea for my nonprofit came, working at middle school students and seeing that they weren't thinking about STEM careers. And it wasn't because they were not capable they just didn't meet or interact with STEM professionals. So they were pursuing things that the adults in their lives pursuing and what they saw on TV. And so when it changed that. And so I worked at Spelman. Um, I spent seven years in the Bay Area, worked at Cal State East Bay. My last position was running the K-16 education program at Lawrence National Berkeley Lab. All of this while doing a nonprofit that I started in 2005. Um, just because I wanted to help one kid, one kid at the middle school, and it just grown from there, and then starting the consulting firm because I wanted to keep the nonprofit focused on the children and providing positive adult role models and exposing them to STEM, but knowing that organizations and parents need support, right? We cannot ensure that kids will pursue STEM if the adults and organizations that educate them and raise them don't know how to support the children. So 
that has been my journey as a chemical engineer that has turned to a social entrepreneur um, and STEM educator. And entrepreneurship really comes from knowing that the change that I want to make in the world and in the field cannot come within the constraints of somebody's organization. And so having that freedom to build the change you want to see, though it comes with a lot of risk, right, as an entrepreneur. Absolutely. You know, it's really interesting, Tokiwa, because I also started in chemical engineering, but in my second year, I switched to accounting. So that was how I ended up in business. For Black kids in general, though, nobody ever talks about STEM for them as a potential opportunity. Why is that the case? It is crazy to me, and I think this is where, when we talk, and I'm trying not to be, I'm trying to be as little apolitical as possible, but, you know, it comes up. One of the reasons I named my consulting firm, Kim Educational Services, is STEM started in the continent, right? People that look like us started STEM that we still use today, the pyramids, um, pharmacies. But somehow between, you know, the slave trade and colonization, the story has been shifted, right? And kids don't realize that people of African descent have been making contributions to STEM since the beginning of time. And it is important that we share that history as well as remind kids that you are capable, you are brilliant, and sometimes although the school system doesn't support that, that is where out-of-school time programs and community organizations and nonprofits come in to give kids that exposure and possibilities and the hands-on stuff that education doesn't have the ability to provide because they go to school to education, so they have no idea what STEM professionals do, but sometimes they make decisions about children's trajectory and what they can do in fields that they don't even work in and will never work in. Um, Then I also think, because I think some of the barriers to um, children of African descent globally not pursuing STEM careers, and I think this varies across all social and economic levels, the adults don't talk enough to the children about what they do every day, right? So there are kids that are living with a STEM professional, have an auntie, a mentor and has no clue what they do, right? All they know is they work at Chevron, they work at BP, they work for the state, and they have this STEM professional in their network that can guide them and teach them and they don't know. And so we as adults have to do a better job of talking to the kids in our lives about what we do every day. You know, that's interesting though, because if Blacks, Black parents or adults are not sharing their day-to-day working life activities with the younger ones, is that a shortcoming on our side? I think it is just being Black in the world, right? And so when you go out to the world and you go into work and you experience all these things of being Black in the world workplace, your home and your community is your place of shelter and strength. And I think that just not wanting to discuss what happens prevents us from having that discussion about our work and other races and nationalities don't have to deal with that burden. And so I feel like when it comes to us being around our friends and the family at home, you know, we're either trying to provide for our children, you know, make a positive experience, you know, 
change from the, and I think that is a disconnect, you know, it's our place of peace, our homes, right? And so we try not to talk too much about work. And then when we do, it's usually with, you know, me and my friends, especially my sister friends, have this thing, Black people in white spaces, right? So when we come from the world having these Black people in white spaces experiences, we want to experience joy, right? We want to experience happiness. We want to relax. And so I think that is why we don't talk to our kids enough about what we do, because we know they go through some things too. So, right. So we're trying to create experiences of joy and happiness and make them feel loved. And so that is the difference within our, I don't think we don't see the importance of it, but the space and community that we create we try to leave all that outside our homes and communities. So in terms of Black children, what does the pipeline look like for them in the STEM world? And how are they thriving? I feel like the pipeline is great for Black children. I feel like the biggest barrier is our educational system. One, there are too many chances. Let's just take the race out, right? Just, just take how the infrastructure of education goes. Every couple of years, there's a shift in either superintendents or policy. And so as a child goes through their K-12 experiences, there could be three to four curriculum changes based on who is in charge. And sometimes that has a gap because there's a, you know, a difference between one, what one curriculum teaches and another one. And there's no time to bridge the gap in this current climate. And I've been dating myself in my early, my 40s. I don't remember it being that many curriculum shifts. I remember we just being taught the basics. We had to take our tests and we passed them all. So that is just one, like, how we do education in the United States barrier to the STEM pathway. Um, the another barrier that has nothing to do with race, but I'm going to bring it race later, is trends, right? So... Instead of saying that we are going to give our children the basic academic knowledge to go ahead and be prepared for post-secondary success, school districts go on trends, right? So now it's, um, we're teaching kids how to do STEM. We're teaching kids how to do arts. We're teaching music. We're taking music out. We don't care about PE now. So we have these obese kids that can't read or do math, right? The first is just figuring out, like, what are the academic skill sets as well as critical thinking, problem-solving skills that kids can learn, and those are things that they are lacking. Um, and the other infrastructure stuff is adults make decisions about children early on in their career, forgetting they are children, you know, and a lot of these adults that have made these decisions don't send their kids to public schools and don't look like the kids they are making decisions about, right? So how can you, like, just like the school to prison pipeline, they're making decisions about an eight-year-old, what an eight-year-old's future would be. Are you on? <laughs> I was going to say something that I want to record, but that does not encourage children to say at eight years old, their path or their lives is determined. That's 
wrong. Like we should be nurturing the kids. I mean, are their brains, I'm not a psychologist or neuroscientist, but I would imagine their brains aren't fully developed at eight. So how can you say children under 18 who are still developing mentally and physically that the decisions that they make or their lack of skill um, determines their future when children are a direct reflection of the adults in their lives. So if you as an educational system are like, my kids can't read the graduation or low, you need to look within and say, what culture are we teaching adults to support learning for children? So that's the basic infrastructure, right? So then let's get to the race factor. Although in certain cities, um, the teacher workforce is diverse, the education field is very much a white woman's profession, right? And that whole culture seeps within education, even in districts that have majority teachers of color. And so with that, there are always biases against Black children. So from higher suspension rate to more in special ed to you know, determining like this kid can't do anything. Like all of those biases come towards black children in the education system. And unfortunately, sometimes black educators do it because it's just a culture of education, right? And until we change that culture of equity and learning and removing biases and not just this, um, you know, busy work of anti-racism and anti-blackness and discrimination in school districts, but actually do the work to culture change. And I have a friend that does diversity and inclusion work, and she talks about having white people and non-black people of color really work around their emotions around why they are so um, resistant to tearing down white supremacy, tearing down anti-blackness, tearing down anti-racism, dealing with those emotions and then processing them and then doing the work to dismantle their systems. But, you know, we just have a problem in our country where, and you it's being seen now, I'm trying not to be political, but it's being seen now where people feel like if I give up my power and give you some power, I lose something instead of that view when we all are successful, the world is a better. I feel like the first key in that is for non-Black people to understand it's not our work, right? A lot of this work is done on the unpaid, emotional labor of Black people, right? And although I hate this term, it is what it is. The oppressed cannot solve the solution, right? It is the oppressor that has to solve it. And so if you are, if I don't like these terms, but it is what it is. If you are the dominant culture or the culture that has decided that you were the dominant culture, right? Because you have created these systems to benefit your culture, how are we going to tear it down? We're not a part of the system, but you expect us to do it. And then sometimes you do performative allyship or performative work, you know, like the NFL, for example, because I love football and I've kind of decreased since, you know, Colin Kaepernick. But the fact that 
in the cause for racial justice this summer. They're like, we're going to just play Lift Every Voice and Sing at each anthem. What? Like, what? There are... <laughs> We know the history of that song and it's important to our community, but it is not, to me, a song for public general consumption outside of our community. And I don't think that if you were talking about racial injustice and doing better and being an ally and changing systems, doing Lift Every Voice and Sing ain't the thing, right? But we can still count on one hand the number of Black head coaches, right? We can count the number of hands, the number of Black um, general managers, right? Even though over 70% of the workforce in NFL are Black, right? And so until the people in power really, really take a look, good look at addressing systems and not doing this performative or throwing checks at the problem, you really have to go into really doing the work. And people don't want to do that because they benefit that. But Separate from racism, I do believe in mutual aid and community care. And so I feel like we can't control the timeline of that when they would do it. Um, we just have to set boundaries on not to take the emotional labor of it. Because this summer I saw a lot of stuff where we took the emotional labor and work for people who didn't even want to Google or read a book, right? And so while they are doing that work, I think we have to do our work and go back to, you know, what our ancestors did of this community care, right? Where we take the responsibility of teaching our children, nurturing our children, um, providing that village that raises our children so that they are confident and anything that they are lacking from these systems that aren't designed for their success combat that with what we teach them, what we teach them community, you know, creating experiences where we take them to museums, we encourage whatever they're interested in. So you know, taking them to STEM events, if they are interested in science, buy whatever they need. If you have lack of resources, um, you can download something on your smartphone or tablet or find free programs or use your park and recs. But going back to while these systems are being dismantled, we can't let our children lack and not feel confident. So we make them feel loved and equip them the very best way we can, like how they did pre-segregation days, right? We had so many brilliant, not only STEM professionals, but other professionals, entrepreneurs, business owners, because that mutual aid and community care and feeding into our children that I know the world says this about you, but you are brilliant. You are beautiful. You are capable. You can do anything you want to do in this world. And we as the adults in your lives are here to support you and to help you get there and to be your safe space. Yeah. From the world. I want to go back to a point you raised before about dismantling this system of white supremacy. You're saying that the people making decisions about various uh, groups are white people. We must have a role to play in this because it's not all at the ground level, you know, parent, child, you know, talking and building their children. But we still have a lot of Black executives, Black influencers at the top. Think about the, the sports arena in entertainment. We still have so many Blacks in that field. 
What can they do? Because they are closer to the top somehow. I mean, I'm sure they still experience what many other Blacks are experiencing, but they still kind of closer to the top. What can they be doing? The first thing is to not sit and enjoy the, the benefits of the proximity of whiteness. Because at the end of the day, there'll be situations that show your wealth and clout don't mean anything. When they want to destroy you, they'll destroy you, that you're still Black, right? And so taking away, because a lot of people in those positions don't do anything because they enjoy the proximity to the power and they enjoy the benefits of that. And so they want to be like, okay, I have these benefits. I have arrived and I am going to enjoy the fruits of my labor. So not enjoying that. Going back to the lift as we climb, right? realizing that there is more than one person at a table, that another Black person being in the room with you, it doesn't just have to be one, right? We can all be there. Supporting someone else doesn't take away your shine. You won't lose anything. Um, I actually have a friend who is a STEM professional that is really, really good at mentoring, advocating for other Black college students advocating for a Black postdoc, and she's in an agency where it's very few Black women, right? But, and I'm, we were talking about it the other day, her advocating and fighting for other Black women and other Black people did not take from her. She's actually gotten two promotions of the last five years, right? So if we take this lift as we climb, and if we support each other and advocate for each other, and when we are in these spaces, um, make you know room for other people. When we are in these spaces, even if we cannot change, because I'm I'm in some rooms where I can't change anything. But what I do is let them know, like this is not okay. And so, either you are going to listen to my input to change. Or I'm going to spend my time elsewhere, but I'm not going to co-side on this, this thing that perpetuates inequity and stereotypes and racial biases and does not promote what you say you want, which is a more diverse and equitable than workforce. Like, you keep that, um, <laughs> do something else. Like, and so I think that that is how we, when we get in these positions where we get at these tables that we are either, if we are able to be listened to and we have decision-making powers, help make decisions and policies that change it and make it equitable for each other. If we don't have the decision-making powers, we have a voice, right? So communicate what is wrong, communicate what is changed. And if that person or group does not listen, don't be afraid to walk away from it. Because when you are in that space and they are doing wrong and you're silent or you stay there, you're complicit and participating in the wrong and the equity that keeps going on in the vicious cycle. Powerful. I interviewed someone a couple of weeks ago. As we were having that conversation, something just came to my mind about Black leaders in the society with influence. I came to the conclusion that there is what we might term intellectual fear. Fear of losing that status, fear of losing that position, fear of being alienated in the room 
fear of being a lone ranger. And I think we concluded that it's probably there, but you have to do what you have to do. Because whether you are experiencing the fear and for that reason you decide not to say anything, you are still on the line because you are still Black. You are still a woman. You are still whatever you categorized as. So we need to overcome that fear. Don't be afraid that you won't be able to have food on your table. We have a lot that did it in the 60s. And some of them, they may not see the fruit of their labor, but we are enjoying the fruit of their labor today. Generations are enjoying the fruit of their labor. So I think there might be fear involved in this, fear of losing face or being classified that too aggressive is too black. What do you think? The maker, you know, <laughs> I think of the, you know, going from like the ancestors and all of that, the people who made the most impact in society change, they risked everything. And, you know, some of them lost their lives, some of them lost their wealth, some of them lost time with their families, but the progress did not occur without their sacrifice, right? And until we have a more equitable world, there has to be some level of, of, of sacrifice made. And you have you have to determine your level of sacrifice, right? Like for me, it's walking away from some tables, right? But I think that the thing is you have to walk in this world authentically Black, whatever the Black experience for you, because we're not a monolith, right? So we all have different experiences and we present our way in the world. But whatever you are passionate about, whatever change you want to see in the world. You can't sit in these spaces and be uncomfortable and know things are wrong and not say anything or try to make change just so you can, you know, keep your fancy house and trips and executive posts, right? Because it's not going to change. It's not going to be better for your children. Um, you can think that you are protected, but you won't be. You just will keep the trappings of it. And they will think it's okay, so they won't ever change, right? And when you are in these spaces where you are by yourself, do you really want to keep being the only? I feel like, and I have this theory that the world is better and your networks are better when it's not too much, right? So it can't be too white. It can't be too black. We just have a diversity of cultures, our our world is a melting pot of people from different cultural experiences, different races and nationalities. And we do better when we work together. I mean, as much as I'm going political, but I'm not going to go too political. I just think about when President Obama won and he had a multi-racial ethnic coalition that was behind him. Now we're experiencing some backlash as a result of him being president, but that is how he won, right? When we think about Kamala Harris and once it was announced, you know, although I cried when she had to drop out of the president's race, I was like, man, this is whatever, right? But with her being, you know, this historic election and VP, once she was brought to the table, right, being a, a, of African descent and Southeast Asian descent, it brought more of us together. And although the Democratic establishment don't want to admit it and it's making the right racist GOP matter, they were able to bring in more money, they were able to bring more voters in, right? Because we had this 
woman of color that various societies could identify with. The immigrants, because her parents were immigrants, Black women, HBCU alum, Divine Nine, um, Asian and Pacific Islanders. Um, all of that was brought in because of who who was chosen and who was brought to the table. And I think once we realize that as non-Black people and Black people, when we are able to bring as many people to the table with a common cause, change can be made. Um, there'll be fights, it's not going to be easy, but that's the only way that change can be made when we stop looking at our own selfish interests and look at the big picture of the world that we want to create, but an equitable world that would be better for our children and those coming behind us. And maybe ourselves too, if we can do it quickly, right? We may enjoy it too. It may not just be for future generations. It can make our lives easier. Some things could be done quicker than others. Absolutely. I think the takeaway there is that when you are in that position, you have power, use it right? Use that power that you have. Use that influence. If we're thinking just about ourselves or just our immediate family, it's almost cowardice to me. So we do have power. And maybe many people don't realize how much power they have. I took a big chance. I've always been in finance. I'm still in finance. I've never spoken on Black this or Black that. But you know what? A few months ago, when when this whole thing started with George Floyd, it's like, and my grandson, who turned four yesterday, said something to me. I'm like, uh-uh, I can't keep quiet anymore. I need to say something. There might be a lot of people that are in high position, but they don't have a voice. That intellectual fear is there. They don't want to say anything because they might take away what they think they have. But the point is that you are there for a reason, and you really need to fulfill that purpose. I really appreciate your thoughts on this. Yeah, but I think so many cultures... So many cultures are so toxic that it makes us believe that we don't have power, right? Because it's the intimidation. It is the, well, we need to stop calling them microaggressions. It's the aggressions that are shown. It is the biases. And so all of these things could chip at you a little bit, a little bit. So you can make you feel as you are powerless and voiceless. And you have to find a way to be like, no, this is toxic, like, I have power. And so it's something that you as an individual may need to work with, you know, maybe go to therapy. I'm a firm believer in therapy, you know, maybe find a support system, but don't let the toxic culture and hostile environments make you think you're powerless. Like if you had no power, they wouldn't be so toxic and bullying and hostile, right? And you probably won't even be in that position if you don't have any power. Because, I mean, who wants a dummy at the table? Okay, I'm thinking more about Blacks in education, STEM in particular, about Blacks, Black parents, and Black children. What do they need to do at this junction right now? Black parents, no matter what your background is, you should pay attention to what your children are interested in and nurture that interest. It can be a diversity of interest, right? So I feel like sometimes with our culture, we rely too much on the schools and what they say and what they provide. Schools don't make decisions about your children, you do. So create the culture in your home, in your community that nurtures your child's ability to learn, ability to explore intellectual curiosity, Um, ability to learn new things and constantly grow. So 
the STEM, take it to the STEM museum, take it to the community STEM events, um, virtual STEM events, now that we're in this pandemic, um, having them, the beauty of your children growing up in social media is that there are a lot of scientists on social media now and they do their journey, they post what they do, their field work, what they do. Um, there are a lot of um, hands-on STEM stuff. Um, another thing is a lot of things that deter kids is when they're not doing academically well in math and science, parents and educators assume that the kids aren't capable. They're children, they came to this world no, not knowing anything. <laughs> So if they are struggling with something, help them. If you are not able to help them, find another adult, find a free tutorial, tutorial program, write a check. Because just some, some child is struggling with something does not mean they're capable, not capable. It happens a lot in STEM because concepts build upon each other. So a child may get stuck in one concept and they may not understand two or three. But if you support them in that one thing that they're stuck, they can move on and to continue to understand the, understand the concept and do well. So also when you're doing homework, give your children adequate time. So I remember, well, I'm not going to share this story, but I remember needing less time for my English and history homework, right? Because it's just pretty much reading, writing, regurgitating, all that, right? But in math and science, it takes more time because it's problem solving, it's critical thinking. You have to write down steps. You have to learn key terminology. In some subjects, you have to memorize um, diagrams and how things work and how they're connected. Um, you have to memorize formulas. That takes time. So, yeah, your children may finish their history or English homework in 45 minutes. They're going to need more time for math. And so, Find a designated time and place for your children to study. So it includes, you know, doing their homework, but it also includes review of terminology and vocabulary. Um, it also includes um, them reading for fun in STEM. So if that's graphic novels, um, have a combination of academic skill development because academics are important. You can't get into college without good grades, right? But it is also with science, it's more than a textbook. And so I feel like, yes, how your children do academically is important, but it's also important creating things they can touch and feel. So if they like to code, teaching them how to code and build mobile apps and video games. If they like animals, um, there's an app called iNaturalist. They can learn about plants and animals and be outside and take them to the zoo. Um, order science kits at home they can do you know there's so many little kids making youtube videos their virtual science academy so nurture that even if you don't like it because neither one of my parents are stem professionals or like stem but they raised my mom raised <laughs> a girl that likes stem and got a chemical engineering so don't put your biases or barriers or interests on your children support their interests. Like I am helping raise a biologist. When I met her, she liked banana slugs. I cannot stand them things, right? But, you know, I didn't put my bias on her, right? I exposed her to people. I took her to science museums. Um, 
fortunately with me being a STEM professional, I was able to take her to some of my colleagues that had labs. So they taught her how to do lab work. You know, I bought her microscopes. I didn't couldn't tell her how to use it, right? But those are the things that we can do to nurture our children's interests and have those things that build upon that academic skill development that is important. Because scientists do, right? And so unless we get our children doing, um, unless we get our children's STEM literacy up, so that's where the reading comes from, right? So reading books, um, reading magazine articles, reading newspaper, reading journals, so you can have a basic awareness, right? Because a lot of happening in our society is because people don't have basic awareness of science. So those are the way um, I'm taking it, I'm taking ownership for the community and parents to do this because there's so many restrictions within the education system that unless you have a teacher that is confident enough to be like, I don't care what my principal says, I'm going to do this with my kids. Teachers don't always have that flexibility and restrictions, but we as a community and the village that helps raise our children, we can do those things to create and raise the future generation of STEM professionals. I'm thinking about the children now, especially teenagers, middle school, getting into high school, and some of them are formed and set in various ways that, oh, I'm totally incapable. I know I can't do this. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Could you speak to them for a minute or so? It bothers me when I feel teenagers do that because I feel like some adult has made a choice on what they're capable of and has broken their confidence. So the first thing is to restore that child's confidence. You know, let them know, like, you're just a teenager. You have plenty of life ahead of you. Restore their confidence. Like, ask questions like, what are you interested in? What makes you smile? You know, with teenagers, they may not know, but you can ask questions like, what TV shows do you watch? What do you like to do when you're fun? Do you like to play video games? So you can get a clue of what they are interested in based on how they spend their time, like who do they follow on social media. Then once you do that and find out their interests, support, support, support. Middle school and high school are critical times where I don't want to say they can't afford to fail, but we need to support them so they don't, right? Because elementary, you know, you can play around, but high school, you need to get good grades to get in college, right? And so what can we do to make up for any academic efficiencies? It's not over. I hate it when people are like, oh, he's in ninth grade. He don't know nothing. What are you talking about? He's still a child. So while we have him for more years or her for more years, what can we do to work on those academic deficiencies and get them stronger? What are the barriers, right? Um, do they have a learning disability? Do they need tutorial support? Are they a visual learner? Like, what are the things that have been barriers to their learning versus assuming that they cannot do it, right? And then the beauty of teenage years is that they can get into programs, after-school programs, weekend programs. So if your child is not the best academically, get them that academic support because they need it, but also spend an extra amount of time getting them into out-of-school time programs where they can explore it. Because a lot of times kids who are not doing well academically, 
do very well in these hands-on programs. And sometimes that hands-on knowledge will give them some motivation to do better academically because they can see the light at the end of the tunnel. A lot of kids don't succeed, not because they're not intellectually capable, but they haven't had enough motivation, right? Like the whole thing is just got a good grade because I say so. And they don't see beyond what the possibility of doing well in school creates for them. Absolutely. Do you mind uh, speaking to the allies on how to remove the roadblocks and support equality in education? My first thing is don't be performative. Either be a true ally or stay away. And what I mean, how to be a true ally, don't come in with the white savior complex. That's not an ally, right? Because you're going to pass your biases and assumptions. So focus on genuine connections. Check your privilege before you even try to be an ally. Don't come to our children with a deficit model as something is wrong with them. I'm here to make their lives better. A lot of your culture has gotten things from cheating, stealing, and all kinds of things. So it's not like you were intellectually better, right? You have just become the dominant culture by, you know, different ways. So building genuine connections and be an honest way to really say the work is on me, right? So don't come with your white tears. Don't come with educating. Don't be like, oh, I didn't know. Don't center yourself, but come and say, okay, I want my network to be diverse. I want to make the world equitable. And in order to do this, I have to do my own work. And I am coming to be of service to children, right? And bring my skill set, my passion in my area to help shape future generations. If you do that, you'll be a great ally. But check your biases, check your culture, check your white savior complex check your deficit model, and really, really get to know and see these kids that you are choosing to invest in, whether it's financially or time, as my investment. Treat it as investment in children in your own community, right? My investment in them, the financial investment, the knowledge investment, the showing them that there's an adult that cares about them, right? sharing my passion about something, all of that investment in this child and in this community will help make the world a better place because children are confident in the world and knowing that there are adults that care about them, believe in them, and are sharing knowledge with them. Thank you, Tokiwa. I was trying to connect what you said earlier on when you said that the oppressor should be the ones that will know what they need to do to fix the oppressed situation. At the same time, they need to be on a really fine balance here. You're saying that come in humbly and then bring your knowledge into play. You want them to come in with a genuine heart, humility. Well, the thing is, when I talk about oppressor and oppressors, I'm talking about systems, right? But when I talk about allyship, these are people and relationships, and I don't see those as oppressor or oppressive. You know, I just see it as this is a person who has benefited from the systems, right? And because of how they benefited and how they learn, some of that learning isn't positive to um, promoting equity, right? So the white 
savior complex that comes where, oh, because of the systems of oppression, right? We always, always assume community of colors have black or don't know anything. Um, we always, you know, some of them are taught to center themselves, right? Instead of learning. So that's why it, it may seem like a contradiction, but it's not because when I say oppressor or oppressive, I think of the system. But when we talk about allyship, it is your relationship to the people. That helped. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Final thing, is there anything you would like to share that I've not asked you? Maybe you have a thought that, you know what, I want to bring that up, but none of my questions has pointed in that direction. When we think about Black children and we have to think about our past, right? And make sure that they are very aware of that in spite of what images they see in the media, um, what in history books that are always accurate, right? Um, we have to show them examples of their brilliance and our brilliance as people of African descent globally and the contributions and positive contributions that we've made to the world because we've been doing them, right? Um, change images of the continent and, you know, where we are globally because a lot of the countries where they talk about, you know, oh, Black people this, the reason that they are there because of stolen wealth and stolen intellectual um, capability and property, right? And so when we think of instead of our thinking of lack, saying a lot of our lack is because it was stolen, right? And so giving children that confidence, show them the history of where you've come, what you're capable of, have positive role models, but not most importantly, speak life into children so that they know, like, if you speak life and they know you care, um, You'll be amazed what children are able to do when they know that they are loved and supported. And so just love and support your children. And when it comes to STEM, um, expose and engage them. Expose them to as many different STEM careers as possible. Take them to as many STEM events and expose them to as many positive STEM role models. And in the beauty of your children growing up in a social media and technology age, they don't even have to be nearby anymore. You can Skype a scientist. You can look on Twitter or Instagram, um, even TikTok, because kids are on TikTok. There are even some scientists on TikTok. So believe in them and expose them. But most importantly, like you got to give them the confidence to know they're loved and supported by their family and their community. Thank you so much, Tokiwa. You've given me so many ideas. I have my grandson, he's four years old, so I'm going to start many of these things. I want to thank you for sharing from your heart. Thank you. Thank you so much and thank you for having me.